You are listening to Fanfare Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Wolcaster. That's not true. Greetings one and all to the first episode of the Mandalorian Reaction Chat brought to you by those dank ferrics over at fanfortracks.com. This is a spoiler-filled episode, so if you haven't seen Mandalorian Chapter 17 The Apostate yet, then what are you waiting for? Pause this and go watch it. So, you may remember that at the end of Season 2, and oh my, isn't that a long time ago, Din Jaren and his crew rescued Grogu from the clutches of the evil Moff Gideon with Din besting him in combat, dripping the Darksaber from Gideon. Din's strike team was saved in the 11th hour by their only remaining Jedi left in the galaxy, Luke Skywalker. So Din handed Grogu over to Luke and therefore completing his quest to reunite the little green guy with his people, namely the Jedi Order. We pick up season three with Din and Grogu. Wait a minute, how did the little green guy get back to Mando? Oh yeah, I remember now. Midway through the Book of Boba Fett, we catch up with Mando, who has returned to the armourer to learn how to wield the Darksaber. During his trial, he is forced to admit that he has taken his helmet off when he said goodbye to Grogu. The armourer declares that he is no longer a Mandalorian. The only way to redeem himself is to head to the ravaged world of Mandalore and bathe in the living waters under the Beskar Mines. Across the galaxy, Grogu is having a space whale of a time under Luke's tutelage, although he is faced with his own choice to fully embrace the Jedi training or to return to Din Djarin. As we know, Grogu headed back to Tatooine to be reunited with Din and helped save Mos Espa from the criminal organisation's intent on taking down Boba Fett. So season three starts a couple of years later, or so John Favreau says, and we see Din and Grogu doing their thing in their modified NY Starfighter. And here to do his thing is the editor-in-chief of Fanvertracks, Mark Newbold. So Mark, before we get into the nitty-gritty, what's your initial thoughts on the start of season three? It's been a long time coming, and I was thrilled to be sitting there again, listening to that music and watching those yeah. characters and being lost in the world of the Mandalorian for, what is it, 35 minutes. Mm. So... I was very happy. What about you? To be fair, it felt really kind of refreshing. It's It, it felt like a nice security blanket of like mm. feeling like you're with old friends. And lots of things seems to like have possibly transpired. And, you know, there's a, f- a few kind of things that I said to myself, hang on a sec, have I missed something? But actually, no, I haven't. There has been this passage of time. Mm. That's clearly, you can see that by the developing Navarro town, because that now seems to be really thriving compared yeah. to how we first saw it at you know, the start of season one. Stuff like Din's got this piece of like Mandalorian scripture on, on himself that he managed to grab from or get from somebody, you know, which is probably going to be a Marvel comic at some point. Um, <laughs> what a cracking start. You know, we, we start off with uh, that Mandalorian ceremony and i think that's the primary focus of that of of seeing the armorer and the rest of i think like clan Vizsla doing this ceremony initiating a guessing a newfoundland into the the mandalorians you know giving him his helmet i guess reinforcing the whole fact that you know you're meant to keep your helmet on and 
and just kind of hammering home, no pun intended, Armour, that Din is in the predicament that he's in because he has taken his helmet off. Therefore, he's been shunned by his clan and now he needs to redeem himself. For five minutes, well, maybe not even that, for about 90 seconds, I'm a little bit worried that we're going to be retreading the start of season two because we had a giant crocodile beast that comes out of the water and kind of felt very reminiscent of how we started season two with chapter five with, um, you know, the crate dragon and the Tuscans and stuff. But then it's kind of led into something else. And again, it's very classical storytelling, lots of Western tropes and this whole kind of like notion of like that role playing aspect of like, you know, you've got your main quest and then you've got to go off onto a side quest. And I think that is where Mandalorian really sings. The scripting, not as dynamic as it could be compared to what we witnessed in Andor. But just overall, just a brilliant, cracking episode. Well, when it started, I wondered whether or not that was a flashback because obviously yeah. hammering home, mm-hmm. hammering home, you know, the thought that Din has really kind of screwed up in the eyes of the armourer by taking his helmet off. And just to say, when she says, do you ever take your helmet off? I assume she doesn't mean when he has a shave or when he needs to scratch sleep out of his eye or anything like that. I wonder if they mean literally never take it off Otherwise, he'd have like the fullest beard in history, but let, yeah, let's exactly. not be silly about this. So that opening scene, I really did wonder whether or not that was a flashback sequence just to ham- you know, really push mm. home the point that this is yeah. something that she is very serious about. But then, of course, when that, as you say, that crocodile creature comes piling out of the water and we get some big creatures in Star Wars and we know Dave Filoni's a kaiju fan. He loves his big creatures. And weirdly, Bad Batch this week had the, basically had the return of the Zillow Beast, which was excellent. So a lot of big creatures in Star Wars right now. But when he comes in in the N1 and does what he does, takes it out, and they couldn't be less impressed. That's very Mandalorian. Do something really heroic and fantastic, and last minute, literally, they're all about to get eaten or squashed, and in he comes. I think because the tone is so different to, well, a lot of other stuff, there's a certain way of speaking. The characters speak in a certain way in Mandalorian. And there's words get like apostate and just lots of different words that you don't generally hear. No. You know, you expected it from the client. That was clearly his pattern. That was clearly his way of speaking. But it is quite general across the characters. They mm. all have this kind of way of speaking. So I do like that a lot. You have to kind of listen really carefully to what they're saying. One thing I did like about this, so you mentioned yeah. the script and, and the, the speech and stuff. There's some humor in this. For example, Grief Karga. Ah, magistrate. Hi, magistrate. The little droids carrying his cloak. <laughs> All the little touches like that, and as you quite rightly said, Navarro, they're trying to make it a destination place, aren't they, as, as a place oh, on the yeah. outer rim. It's working. Yeah, well, I mean, you think about first uh, couple of episodes and, and that opening trailer, you know, we saw um, Quacky Monkey Lizards roasting on a spit, and mm. now they're free to roam around on, you know, in trees. Uh, I think even somebody else pointed out online that the bat-like creatures that attack Grief, actually, at the end of season one, you know, where yeah. Grogu kind of does his crazy hand thing. You know, there's one on somebody's shoulder, so it's almost like, you know, it's a pet. The whole place has been completely rejuvenated, and from a design aspect, that classic arch that they had at the opening of the, the town was really kind of run down and almost about to collapse on itself. But in season two, it's been rebuilt, and in season three, it looks great. It's bigger, yeah. it's been painted, you know, and, and so therefore, you can kind of see this, and the people around as well, you know, you've got kids running around and playing, and that you've got a little kind of band who are playing and the general vibe is really nice. But one thing about the speech reminds me of 
because it seems very straightforward and you know there's no hidden like meanings it doesn't feel like there's subtext like you know anywhere near what we've had in Andor but it just reminds me of role-playing games you know when you go up to an NPC on a computer game and it says <laughs> oh hello Mando here you go you need to go and take this over to the baker to get your four candlesticks or whatever that kind of thing it, it has that kind of very straight way of talking which I, f- I do really enjoy but obviously it does slightly set itself apart then from other shows like Andor you know the scripting was just sublime and this isn't criticism it shows how actually even in star wars things that are very star wars can have their own unique identity yet still work between themselves it's funny though this is the first live action thing we've had since andor and of course this predates andor by a good chunk of time Mm andor is very much in the wheelhouse of rogue one but made in a more mature way so i think it was always going to be a question of how are we going to feel about the next thing and thank goodness the next thing is the mandalorian because one, it's something we're familiar with. And mm-hmm. two, in this episode, definitely setting the stall for the new mission, as you excellently laid out in the recap at the start of the show of what his mission was over those first two seasons and Book of Boba Fett. But now it's a different thing. It's now I'm clearing my name, but only in the eyes of my people because Grief Cargo's like, stay here, be a marshal, take some land and settle down. You can live off it and have a good life, you and the kid. The offer is completely there, I felt, as a viewer. Grief meant that. He was yeah. he was genuinely, you know, they owe each other their lives. They've been in battles before. So it's meant as a friend. Not going to be much of a show if we're just watching The Mandalorian plowing the land and sowing seed. We almost got that in what, chapter four. This show has always relied heavily on Western tropes. One of mm. the Western tropes that is quite apparent from this and from chapter four and now chapter 17, was it? The hero who comes in who sorts out the town is not the kind of person who can stay around because he's mm. he's outside of that kind of civilization, outside of society in that kind of way. And so therefore, once town is, is safe, and in this case the pirates are put to bed, then he has to move on. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because there you've got Grief Cargo, who's now the high magistrate, and mm. Moff Gideon refers to him as a disgraced magistrate. Now, we don't actually know what he did. Was he taking bribes? Was it kickbacks or something? But you can start to just see that, whilst I don't necessarily say he's corrupt, there's a bust and there's a cape and there's a little yeah. droid. And so you think this is a man who would like to kind of live amongst the wealth and the trappings of That's the right. station that he actually yeah. feels that he deserves. Deserves, definitely, yeah. yeah. Therefore, it will be interesting to see if you go back in a couple years' time, maybe the end of this season or next season, and Navarro is kind of becoming, unfortunately, slightly corrupt just by the very nature of the people in charge. Hi, this is Dave Chapman, and you're listening to Fanta Tracks. It's going to be interesting to see that. I mean, a lot of characters, as you say, there's definitely been a passage of time, and as you alluded to, Favreau had sort of said a oh, yeah. couple of years, which was su- a surprise to me. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, no, but but it's good that, that they've done that because you can see, as you see, you physically see it with Navarro. You don't really sense it with Mando and Grogu, but you kind of think their relationship's fairly static. Grogu seems a bit more alert now to things happening around him. He was a bit more sort of looking at people talking. He's picking up more. That's how I read it. Before he was off in his in his little fairyland, you know, when he's in the chair spinning around, you know, it's a that's sort of a kiddie type thing. But he just seemed more alert to me when we go and visit Bo-Katan in the castle. And she's kind of sitting in the chair, just looks casual, but clearly she's not in a in a good place. And the whole scenario of what the hell happened? Well, I didn't have the dark saber, so nobody would follow me. So that all kind of fell apart. And now the Mandalorians are just out there being mercenaries, which is kind of how we used to think of the Mandos to a degree anyway. Yeah, pretty much. And that would be interesting to see where that goes. But I think it all goes back to Mando being a man 
with his own code of ethics and his own code of honor. And that this scenario, this situation he finds himself in, trying to find the wells to bathe himself, to get forgiveness, it's a process he has to go through because other people, as I say, have given him opportunities. You've earned your rest. Take your foot off the pedal. He can't do it. Moses can't go to the promised land. He'll save the village, but he'll never stay in it. So he's driven by his own ethics. And I still think back to when he met Bo-Katan for the first time and he's not taking his helmet off and she's taking her helmet off. And the way it was played was he was the weird one. He was the odd yeah. one and mm-hmm. she wasn't. You know, sometimes the person who gets the foot in the door first is always seen to be the right one. Neither are particularly right. They're both Mandalorians. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays this season. I guess we can kind of pretty much, I think, assume anyway that either midway through, if not the the climax of this season, I can't believe I'm talking about the climax of the season of the first episode, <laughs> but, you know, it will end up on Mandalore. Will that satisfy the armourer as much as um, he thinks it will? She kind of inferred it yeah. will, but she's more flaky than she lets on, I think. You know, if you if you if you follow dogma and you follow strict kind of like scripture and stuff like that, mm. you know, then you have a very myopic view of things. She could be using it like I'm going to mm. send you to Mandalore to find out whether or not like it's livable. Yeah, saves me going and saves me risking my own neck. Yeah, if you come back, then great. But you know, maybe you haven't fully atoned. Maybe you need to do something else. You know, maybe now your next crest is to unite all the Mandalorians. Because that's the and thing, he still has it? the dark saber. He still has the dark exactly. Yeah. He still has a dark saber. So by rights, he is the Mandalore. Just because Bo-Katan is kind of sat in a throne, and that throne is it's like her family house, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's you know? very Game of Thronesy on the coast. Yeah, just the feel of it. Just the way that she's kind of like languidly kind of lying there, mm. evoked memories of how Darth Maul sat in the the Mandalore throne in Clone Wars. True. Very kind of casual and arrogant in nature i think with the mandalorian throne just as a broader point yeah becoming the ruler of a mandalore isn't the goal becoming the ruler of mandalore is a means to an end yeah. it feels like it's a piece of a puzzle that you need to have so you can achieve other things whereas with most thrones that's the goal i'm now king of wherever and i can rule and we can do this and we can make things better or make things worse but with mandalore it always feels like a means to an end and it's weird seeing Bo-Katan like that because you know how motivated she can be. If you get the throne back, I mean, obviously there's a symbology. Do you literally go and do pick up that throne, stick it in the back of a van and, and carn it off to another <laughs> planet? You know, yeah. because if it's portable, yeah. Exactly. If Mandalore's been completely decimated and they say, you know, nobody can survive there, hence why I guess uh, Mando has selected IG-11 to come with him. Interesting um, scenes. Then it's like, okay, well, it's either a case of you reunite the Mandalorian people, and then I guess you've, you've got to then find somewhere for them to live. So, yeah, it's like the second act of a three-act play. Once you've united them, you've got to kind of then go find somewhere for them to live. Like you say about the armourer being very dogmatic and fixed in her ways and the way she thinks, without knowing the specific details of, of that region of space, you kind of think there's certain worlds that would be acceptable and other worlds you would look at and go, that looks perfect. No. So there's probably a lot more politics within the clans going on than, than we realise. You could just literally just look at the two main clans, you know, the, like Bo-Katan's clan, Kreese, and yeah. then obviously the, the Death Watch. They're polarised, you know, even just by the simple, like, signifier that one has a, to keep their helmets on, the other one takes it on and off as they choose. It suggests just how different mm. they are and polarised they are. So you need somebody in the middle. So you do need somebody like and uh, Jaren who could, I guess, either come in and kind of say, you know what, if you want to wear your helmet all the time, wear your helmet all the time. If you don't, you don't. 
But hmm. we're all Mandalorians. Yeah. It's not like, you know, where we used to think the Mandalorians, just like everything in Star Wars, was very typecast and very singular. It's like they take in whoever they can. Foundlings is a huge part of exactly. what they are, isn't it? Precisely. Yeah. So therefore, it's the armour and it's the, the, the creed and the code of whatever that is, is what kind of defines them rather than actually who's underneath the helmet, which I guess is the whole point of them keeping the helmet on. Because when you've got the helmet on, we're all equal, we're all the same. Doesn't It doesn't matter about, you know, matey boy over there's a Nikto and the other guy's Corellian or whatever like that. We're all brothers and sisters and yay, go Mando. For everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark fanthatracks.com. For Star Wars News 24-7-365. Just generally speaking, what did you make of the pirates? Hmm. When I see pirate, when I think of Star Wars and Star Wars pirates, I don't necessarily think of... Yeah, you know? Hondo. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Hond- yeah, Hondo's probably the, the closest that we've got to like a proper direct lift of what a, a literal space pirate is i was just kind of like oh you know it, it, it felt very off the shelf to me mm, it cliched yeah. in the way that in in the clone wars all the weak ways spoke with landed excess like that eh? and it was all that sort of really kind of cliched sort of stuff like they had all the they don't now so much but they had a lot of the twi'leks in clone wars speaking with french accents well and so they sort of attribute accents to races which is i'm fine with it's cool they felt like they came from the same design school as the mods did from Book of Boba Fett. From Book of Boba, yeah. I, I, I still sit on the fence, although I think I'm leaning to the negative side a little bit, about the captain as well, the whole plant-like alien creature, which, I mean, we've had, you know, we have sentient plants now in Star Wars, thanks to the High Republic. It's like, yeah, space pirates of the Caribbean. It reminded me of Faris a little bit from Galaxy Quest. It had that yeah, about it. Yeah. You know, the big green dude, you know, that angry thing. And I think, I think if I read the credits correctly, because they kind of speed by and shrink and get bigger. Uh, I think that was Kerry Jones who played uh, Santon in Book of Boba Fett ah, was, cool. was that yeah. character. So I, I kind of like that. And as soon as I saw the, the, the green stuff, first thing is looks like Swamp Thing. And then yeah. it's like, is that a Drengear? I mean, I suppose it all depends upon if they're just like villain of the week or if they're going to make a return. He pegs it, doesn't he, at the end? He, he kind of sees that massive star mm. cruiser yeah. and just kind of goes, no. Um, and, and rightly so, he's only in an M1. I reckon yeah. if he was in the Razor Crest, he might have had a go. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, but he's got the speed, so he can just kind of nip out. But then obviously that still leaves a pirate problem in Navarro. So wouldn't be surprised if we come back to see pirates have overrun the place a little bit. If Mando was asked by Grief to pull a, pull a team together to protect Navarro from pirates, yeah. you know he'd do it. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But also a character that, a lot of people I expect wouldn't anticipate a mention of was Cara Dune. Cara yeah. Dune gets a direct mention. She's now with the New Republic doing whatever she's doing with them. So they didn't kill her off. We still don't really know what happened on the bridge at the end of season two because you, you sense that Bo-Katan is going to have a big problem with Mando walking away with the Darksaber after he's just got it from Gideon. That's a story and a moment I hope we get some resolution to. I'd love it if it was a novel. I know Adam Christopher had written a Mando novel that got cancelled because they're keeping a very tight rein on ex- external storytelling yeah. to what we see on screen. And that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. But I don't see, personally, I don't see any reason why they couldn't do, if they wanted to, a Mandalorian animated series to, to accompany it and fill in certain stories. That's definitely an option if they want to go down that route. I have no doubt Pedro Pascal will be probably quite happy to do a bit more voice work to do that. The fact that they have given that two-year time gap so actually, that might not necessarily be a bad way to go. Like, how does that initial 
time after Brogo left, how does that affect Din? What does he do? Where does he yeah. go? So that, you know, that's not necessarily like a bad thing. I mean, it'd be an interesting book to get, or again, like I said, comic. Hi, this is Hugh Quashing. I've had great pleasure in recording this interview for Fan for Tracks. I think we were monster enthusiastic for season three anyway. Yeah. And, and very, very ready for it. That's fairly consistent feeling amongst most people. I don't think there was much ambivalence towards season three of Mando. I think everyone was ready to get stuck in. And for an episode that really, if you step back, and we've been spoiled over the years, the recent years with what we've got, you step back and go, that set the table. That really has laid out the table for what we're going to get in season three and where Mando's focus is and where the other players are. So now we know about Navarro and Grief. And in a weird peripheral way, we kind of know that Cara Dune's out of it, but at least she's doing something yeah. as a character. And Bo-Katan is in a not a good place. And so there's all these places where you think, well, you might have anticipated Bo-Katan to be a complete ally or an adversary. To me now, she feels more like she's going to be adversarial than helpful. And other characters we've seen in the past, if the crew needs to be brought together, well, Cobb Vanth is always knocking around at Mos Pelgo, and there's different people who you know that he could pull in. Blimey, he basically resurrects IG-11 from the dead. We had that great little scene with Shirley Henderson back as the Azellians doing the voices of the Babu Frick characters. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole sequence was hilarious when Grogu oh, gets hold of yeah. the one. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's like you kind of allude, you know, said earlier on, I think they're finding really nice ways to include Grogu without it always feeling like, oh, let's just cut to the kid just to remind yeah. people that he's there, you know, mm. and, and that whole kind of thing with like, no, he's not a pet, put him down, he's not a toy. The whole workshop, I just loved the fact that it was like, <laughs> like what, three and a half feet tall or something. Yeah. And it's just like, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. But then when you see it, you kind of go, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. The grief moments with him being a bit up himself, was enjoyable and I hope that it remains that he's just a bit pompous and that yeah. he doesn't go down the route that you you laid out a, pla a pathway for him being actually a problem because the wealth and the opulence and the notoriety maybe becomes too big for his head kind of hope he just remains a little bit up himself just make him any less of a threat he could have gunned that pirate down but he didn't he knocked the blaster out of his hand it was Mando that gunned the other guys down exactly yeah so grief kind of gives them a chance or gives that team a chance. It's Mando that's, that's really got the problem. So there was lots of little subtleties going on in and around the character development. And also another thing that struck me, if it is two years, he actually says to Grief Karga, his name's Grogu. Huh? So they've not met. This is a couple of years since everything that happened in at the end of season two. And it has been a couple of years. We've had COVID in real life, so things mm. have moved on. Yeah. But you kind of think now, if people know about Mando, and they do because he's notorious in that, in that world, if you like, they'll know that he's with Grogu, he's with the kid. So they've become a proper little, it's the proper Lone Wolf from Cobb thing now, isn't it? It's a known thing. Whilst the end of season two felt like an ending to that mm. kind of first arc, this kind of feels like we're bonded to each other now. So we don't need to worry about that. Barring obviously him getting like kidnapped or something mm. like that, I don't think there's any going to be any risk of any kind of separation unless no. he starts wanting to kind of hang off the back of a pergil. You kind of go, well, hang, hang on a sec. You know, this is going to surely got to tie directly into Ahsoka as well. Yeah. You know, this is all leading towards something. And wherever that is, Grand Admiral Thrawn out in the, you know, the unknown regions. Mm -hmm. And and this is the thing is that actually, you know, there's no reason I don't necessarily think where they couldn't turn around and actually kind of say, you know, the impetus behind the First Order was in fact actually Grand Admiral Thrawn. They could kind of wreck that it. in. 
Yeah, you totally. Know? I was literally going to say that, just pitching forward as we roll out the episode, pitching forward to later in the season and certainly later in the summer to Ahsoka. Admiral Thrawn gets name-checked in Mando when you see Ahsoka for the first time. We kind of feel like he's going to be the main threat in the Ahsoka series. We know from what Lucasfilm would like to do is give a bit more depth and a bit more heft to the creation of the First Order way out there in the Unknown Regions, which reaches its peak on Exegol in Rise of Skywalker. I just wonder whether or not Admiral Thrawn is one of the architects of that whole process yeah. and whether or not we will actually see Exegol in Star Wars television sooner rather than later because it feels like that could be how all this storytelling ties up. And it would certainly explain how somehow Palpatine returns. Well, we need to explain that somehow, don't we? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I think on that note, let's call it the end of our first reaction chat for season three of Mandalorian. And no doubt we will be back next week to do it all again and discuss chapter 18. So I can't wait. Thanks for listening to Making Tracks. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit fanthatracks.com or check out the free Fanthatracks app for the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. You can reach out to us to send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at fanthatracks.com. Comment, like, and share on any of our social media feeds at Fanthatracks. And be sure to subscribe, leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast or smart speaker of choice. And as always, thanks to James Temple for composing the Fanthatracks intro, Adam O'Brien for I'm making tracks out with music and Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers. Remember, tune in to Good Morning Tatooine. It's live Sunday evenings at 9 o'clock UK, 4 pm Eastern, 1 pm Pacific on Facebook and YouTube. And check out our Fanthatracks Radio Friday night rotation every Friday night at 7 pm UK time for new episodes of the Phantom from Down Under, Planet Layer, Desert Planet Discs, Start Your Engines, Collecting Tracks, Cannon Fodder, and special episodes of Making Tracks. And that's me done for this episode. Well done. And until next time, everybody, stay safe, take care. But more importantly, may the force be with you. Coming up next on Fanta Tracks Radio, it's Making Tracks.